Today on Sagittarian Matters, dykes, gangs, the 1990s, San Francisco, pansexuality, coming out, advice, riot girls, and more with my guest, Michelle T. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Michelle T. is a writer, filmmaker, stand-up comedian, and a regular on Sagittarian Matters. She is the author of the books Valencia, The Chelsea Whistle, Black Wave, Modern Tarot, and the new essay collection, Against Memoir. Michelle joined me from her Los Angeles home to talk about legendary San Francisco dyke gang, The Hags. But first, we answer an advice question about sexuality and coming out. Please enjoy my talk with noted Aquarius, Michelle T. Hi there. I just started to come to terms with my sexuality. At first I thought I was bi, but now I'm starting to think I'm pansexual. But I don't know how to tell. Am I really open to everyone? Plus, I wish my family knew. I just don't know how they'll take it. People say they'll love you no matter what until that what happens. Then they change. I want to come out and taste rainbows in peace, but my surroundings won't let me. With queer love jumbled in jalopy town. Jumbled in jalopy (laughs) town. Did she just make that up? Jumbled. Um, If that is your real name, which we know it's not. Um, Congratulations. On um, having such an exciting sexual orientation. Um, I mean, I think that I don't think you need to figure out if you're pansexual or not. Can't you just like take it as it comes and just be like, I think I'm open to like all varieties. And because like no one's into all people. Like, you know what I mean? Like you'll meet like just because you meet a woman, you're like, oh, I actually don't want to have sex with that woman. Doesn't mean you're not attracted to other women, you know? So it's just kind of like it sounds like you're pretty open so just like be open, you know, and don't don't worry about having to put a name on it or is it pansexuality or is it, is it this or is it that? Just like, you know, you're not straight. So, you know, you're queer. It sounds like, it knows, you know, you fall under the queer umbrella, um, so which could, is cool. Could you come out as queer? Just come out as queer. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, what's so interesting. Not that interesting. But when I was a teenager, I was like, I think I'm bi. I was a bi-curious, uh-huh. but I didn't, I didn't test it. Mm-hmm. Like there was kind of that idea that you have to test it. To see if it's true or not. Like, I like I have this idea that I might like this thing, but I don't want to rope anyone else into my experimentations and get their feelings involved. Uh, so then I just didn't uh-huh. do anything for a long time. It was still just like an untested idea that mm-hmm. I thought I was bisexual. Um, but so I didn't come out. I didn't feel the need to come out to anyone until I had actually tested it out with a real-life lesbian. Oh, my God. And then I was like, oh, okay, I like it. <laughs> okay, now I know for sure. But like straight people never have to come out. Straight people don't have to test it. They don't have to have right. sex for the first time before they decide they're straight. Or they can have a bad first sexual experience, which hi, how many fucking straight people, straight women have bad first sexual experiences? And that doesn't mean that their sexual orientation is in the dumps. Right? right? right. Like you can just like mess around, like a girl can mess around with a boy and just be like, ew, that was gross, but like 
do they then think they're a lesbian? Probably not. They just think like that dude was gross. Yeah. Right. So, so if you think you're pansexual, you're probably you're pansexual. Probably pansexual. Yeah. If you get crushes on all kinds of people, there you are. Cool. That's it. I came out as bisexual to a bathroom wall in New York City you did? when I was a teenager. What do you mean? I was like drunk in New York City, and I was um I was like in a bathroom in like a bar or something, and um. How did I get into a bar in New York? I was definitely not 21. Um, I just remember it when it was really dark and red and I had like a pen in my bag and there was graffiti everywhere, all crazy graffiti. And I just wrote, I think I'm bisexual. <laughs> I wrote it on the wall. <laughs> oh my God. Did you sign it? I didn't sign it. I, I wish you would nothing. sign it. I didn't leave my number or anything. I just wrote, I think I'm bisexual. Michelle, I came out in my zine. Almost the same wording. Oh, my God. I, I had a, a photograph of a typewriter. All the keys were whited out, and I had written on top of the keys, like, psst, I think I'm, I think I like girls. That's oh. what I said. And that was it. That's and then so I was great. like, shh, don't tell anybody or something, which I think is so stupid. But <laughs> we got to help Jumbled. We got to get we back to Jumbled. Jumbled. So Jumbled, I, do you have to come out to your family? If you feel like it, if you're in a safe place, if that would help you in some way to like feel more honest in your life, certainly. And just know that like the the fullest part of you with all the stuff is still lovable. So even if you're not meeting your parents' expectations, that's okay. You're still lovable and it may take them a second to understand it or to come around, but uh, ultimately they will or they won't. And there's a lot of people that will love you for your true self. For sure. And it's like, I understand that like, you just might feel like it's really hard to not be authentic with the people that you're around all the time. I'm presuming you're around your family a lot. And if you feel like this this big part of you um, that's exciting and cool and taking up so much of your mental space and you're not able to share that, then I can see how that would just become very frustrating. And, and you might just hit that breaking point where you just have to tell people and just make sure you have a support system around you, whether it's like other people in your world or even like people that you meet like on the interwebs or something. I don't know. Don't people in terrible, terrible, isolated communities reach out to like-minded people on the internet? Isn't that the point of the internet? They really um, do. Yeah. But, you know, and they might act, react shitty at first, you know? My mother acted so stupid when I first told her that I was queer. She was like, you're going to get AIDS. It was the 80s. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was the very early 90s. It felt like the 80s still. The 80s was casting its shadow. But, um, yeah, you know, and she just was, like, freaked out and didn't like it. And now she's, like, so psyched that I'm gay. Like, she she was, like, once she said to me, I was, like, oh, I got this grant. I'm going to, like, Poland to, like, teach writing to, like, feminists in Warsaw. And she was, like, your life is so exciting. Imagine if you were straight. Your life would be so boring. So, like, she understands that, like, the, like, I mean, that said, a straight person could also, you know, figure out how to go teach writing to feminists in Warsaw if they really wanted to. But she's right that my life is so exciting and so cool because I'm queer. And um, it took her a little while to figure that out, but she really gets it now. And I think that the culture that we're living in supports that idea now more than ever. So you've got a lot backing you up. Yeah. 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 I like the idea of also making sure you have your own support system around you. Totally. So then your family can act however they're going to act and you still get to be supported and feel like you have a community and you have fun. Yeah. And you're not doing anything wrong. Like you're not doing anything wrong by like being pansexual and you're not doing anything wrong by being openly pansexual at all. I would say I wouldn't present the questioning part to my family. That's just me because I feel like 
they kind of sometimes they want to talk you out of it. They want to oh, be like, definitely. well, how do you know, blah blah totally. blah? Well, maybe blah blah blah. I would just make it as simple as po- keep it simple. Yeah. Make it as simple as possible. Don't do a lot of explaining because that will make room for them to try and poke holes in it. Right. And you can tell if they're going to try if that's what they're doing. Like, are they asking you questions to poke holes in it? Or are they asking you questions because, like, they're curious and want to celebrate you? Yeah, like, you can tell the difference. Like my mom has like a line of a line of I don't not questioning, but she'll be like, "You're too beautiful to be a lesbian." Like <laughs> she has like you know some different <laughs> arguments that she'll make. That, you know, like I like, that one, like you'll be like, "Oh really? I'm not ugly." Okay, <laughs> I guess I'm gonna be straight then. <laughs> You're saying I could bag a man? <laughs> I just hadn't realized. Thank you, mom. Oh, God. <laughs> Thank you so much. Today's episode of Sagittarian Matters is brought to you by Cute Fruit Undies, makers of extremely cute, comfy, and eco-friendly period panties, briefs, and pads, specializing in period panties with Trump's face in them and without, if that's not really your thing. Use offer code GETCUTE for free shipping at cutefruitundies.com or find them on Instagram at cutefruitundies. Michelle, you wrote an essay about a gang called the Hags in San Francisco. This essay about Hags is in your new book, Against Memoir, Mm -hmm. that is out with Feminist Press. Can you tell me who were the Hags? Um, Well, in the 90s in San Francisco, in the mission, it was like there was it was a huge um, like queer female like. I mean, I almost want to call it, it was a scene. It was like a true cultural scene. It was like a happening. Something was going on. Uh, I didn't know that when I moved there. I just moved to San Francisco because I was following like my friend who moved to San Francisco. And he had told me like, oh, you know, boys are mostly in the Castro and girls are mostly in the mission. And we went to this club um, that was called Junk. And um, before it was a club called um, 99 Cent Queer Video Night. And it was really fun because the 99 Cent Queer Video Night was hosted by these like really cool artsy gay boys who made videos. And then it led over the dance party following it was Junk, which were these really cool like punk dykes. So it was a, a really cool mixed crowd and it was like punk and queer. And that was the vibe throughout the mission. I mean, it was really amazing. There was just like all I, I was coming from Boston where like the lesbians I had met were sort of academic and buttoned up and like I didn't you know, I was like, I, th- I think I'm queer. I want to be queer. I want to be a lesbian, but like, I can't, I'm not meeting any people who have like my background of being punk or like interested in zines or counterculture. Like everyone was sort of like straight laced. Um, and then I got to San Francisco and it was just like crazy. It was like punk and metal and like SM and like people were sewing their vaginas shut for like SM, like performance art on like a bar while you're like drinking a beer next. I mean, it was wild. It was total wildness. And in the midst of this was a group of people who um, were all queer females. They were super butch. They were super hot. They called themselves the hags and they were a gang. They just were like, we're a gang. We're the hags. And they were super badass and metal and like did a lot of drugs and were really tight and were always together. And like, we're always like in the front row at like tribe eight shows. And if there was like a metal show or a punk show that was at all queer, like they were there en masse. And, um, and I just like knew, like, I just, the way that, you know, people in your scene, even if you don't know them well, you know, like I didn't really hang out with any of them. Like I sort of thought they were really, I thought they were a little scary and attractive. I was, um, you know, writing in a cafe one day and 
two hags, uh, a hag named Fiverr and a hag named Johanna, were both there. And I kind of knew Johanna because Johanna was really friendly and hung out at the Bearded Lady Cafe a bunch. Um, and Fiverr was like a little bit more quiet, I guess, like had like more of like an elusive vibe. Um, but they were making, they came over to ask me for a piece of paper because they were making stencils about Valerie Solanus because they told me Valerie Solanus, who, who of course I knew who she was. I was like obsessed with the scum manifesto and I couldn't believe these people knew too. Um, that she had died in a hotel in the Tenderloin in San Francisco and they were going to make stencils to kind of commemorate her. And I was like, I had not known that Valerie Solanus had any connection with San Francisco. And I was so excited to learn that. And I was like, these people are so cool. Like they are like, they're going to go do graffiti about Valerie Solan. Like what could be cooler? You know, I was like 22, 23 years old. They weren't that much older than me, but they seemed a lot more worldly than me. And um, so, yeah, like they just were very emblematic to me of like what, the what the queer dyke punk scene in San Francisco was in the 90s um and they all had like leather jackets or denim vests that had like hags on the back of it and it was like very selective of like who got to be a hag and yeah. how did how did you get to be a hag I mean I guess like you know I to, to write the article I did interviews with you know all of the former hags that I could get my hands on who are are um still alive because not not all of them are um, and also like people who had dated hags and people who were like hag adjacent were close to the hags. Um, it was basically sort of like, I don't know if you were sort of like a common spirit, like you also were like buck wild for like all girl metal bands and wanted to nothing to do nothing more than get wasted and go to a, like a metal show and like were butch and yeah. sort of just like, and kind of had a hard life. I mean, I think, you know, the nineties don't feel like they were that long ago, but it was such a different landscape for queerness. And it was like, you know, San Francisco was a violent place. There were a lot of batchings, um, especially in the mission. Um, you know, most people, you know, these are people who were coming out to their families about being queer, like in the eighties or nineties. And there were people got kicked out of their families. People were coming from homes that had been sort of like ruined by just like dysfunction and so these are those like people who are like looking for like so many of us that came to san francisco were looking for like a new family like and they found each other and they were definitely like you know the the scene in san francisco in the 90s was pretty inebriated i mean i was very inebriated there was definitely like lots of drinking and there was some drugs and the hags were definitely increasingly it was like a drug culture within the gang um and so, yeah, that's... What made you decide to write this article about them? Well, the, what, at the end of the 90s, a couple of the, um, a couple of the folks in the hags died um, from flesh-eating bacteria. And it was really shocking. I mean, and, and I, I wasn't even, again, like I was not cl- close friends with these people. Because how old were they? They were in their 20s. Which is nuts to think about now. Yeah, they were babies, you know? Like, like if you just think about the crazy shit you did in your 20s, and they just were just doing their crazy shit in their 20s, and, you know, ideally you get the chance to sort of, like, grow out of it, you know? And some of them didn't, you know? They just, they got sick, and it was really awful, and it was it was traumatizing. I can't imagine how traumatizing it was for the people who were closest to them. I felt really shocked and disturbed by it and it was um also they were poor and they're they were kind of genderqueer they were totally for their time they were 100 percent genderqueer all of them they were all super super butch 
Um, some folks have since transitioned to male. Um, who knows for the folks who passed away what their future would have been like. So you the know? treatment in the hospital, the people that were allowed to be around them in the hospital. It was chaos. And it was also a time when, you know, there was no cell phones and there was no email, you know, and, and especially anyway, when you're living a life of an addict, your life is very chaotic anyway. So even if those things were available, who's to say they would have had them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I know that there's a story that's one of their um, close friends tried to go to the hospital after after one person had passed away to find out like what the hell happened and they were treated super rudely by a nurse um and which just really like i think gave the feeling that like they had been so so disrespected you know in their in their death like they had been so vulnerable and they were so sick and they were dying and they went into this institution that didn't care about them and I can't speak for that the nurse who who was so rude um to to the to the hags friends who who were looking for information but I did in my research end up finding the doctor who actually was the surgeon and spoke to him and he's actually a really wonderful and deeply compassionate person and was like remembered this so clearly um when it happened and was so upset that the folks had died and like is really compassionate towards addicts and doesn't ha- didn't in my speaking to him have any sort of like nothing raised my hackles like the way he spoke about addicts was so deeply compassionate and just like normal like these are just normal people who need help and they need our help and we we need to be there to help them and in the wake of of what happened it, it wasn't only the um the two people um from the hags who passed away there were two other people from the hags who got sick and survived and there were other two other addicts who also got sick with the same bacteria who survived and normally uh, San Francisco General Hospital, like in a span of years, would only treat maybe three people with this bacteria. So to suddenly be treating like six people in the span of a week was really overwhelming and scary for them. And they were afraid that they had a real epidemic on their hand. And so they went into overdrive trying to get the word out about it, um, which had the the effect of also um, sensationalizing the deaths a little bit also, which was kind of a problem because it was like, these are people who lived outside of um, the mainstream and were, you know, were scorned by the mainstream and suddenly they're all in the papers for being addicts who died in this grisly way. So, so that sucked that that happened. Um, Something that came out of it that's positive is that now that surgeon created a special soft tissue clinic at San Francisco General Hospital that only treats these kind of infections that are common to um, people who are using drugs intravenously. So, and it's, it's really, really helped people. Um, So, yeah. So it's like, it's, it's a gnarly story, right? It's like these, these are people who were super inspiring to me. They were important people in, in the, in the, in the queer female, in the dyke scene in San Francisco, they were really important. They were part of the community. They were friends and lovers and performers and you know artists and stuff and um and then their addiction took hold and this horrible thing happened did you know that this was going to be kind of the arc of the article before you went in or how did you tackle it i mean i kind of did because i I think when you're approaching an article where somebody dies in it you kind of know that it's going in that direction you know and you are arcing it in that way just because there is an end you know, but there's also people who survived. And so that was part of the story also, you know, is talking to people who survived and how their lives changed as a result of that and like who they are now and what their lives are like. Um, so yeah, I mean, I went into it 
knowing that I was going to write about their deaths, but I really wanted to write about their lives and about why they're important. I mean, their deaths have already been written about in this very kind of like throwaway way in the paper, in the papers when it happened. But I wanted to write about like who they were and why, why they were meaningful, why their lives are meaningful and, and, um, and the ways that they lived were meaningful. I mean, it's like, they were real like warriors. I mean, it's so, it was so hard to be genderqueer in the nineties. I mean, it was like, and they were people who were coming from families that had been abusive. And it's like, they conjured this sort of, um, coping mechanism that was just like, we're going to fuck shit up. And the shit we might be fucking up is like our lives. And like, that's okay too, you know, Mm -hmm. which might seem like real, like counterintuitive and crazy to be so self-destructive. But I just think in a world where, that seems like it's trying to kill you mm-hmm. when you don't have a lot of faith that you're necessarily going to live a long and happy life because everything is conspiring against you. You just, you can be self-destructive and it feels kind of like an affirmation in a way where you're just like, I have some agency here. I'm going to do what I need to do to feel good right now. You know, it's for, you know, one of the hags um, actually, was under the impression they only had two years to live. So they were really just kind of going out with a bang. And it turned out they were wrong. Um, they'd gotten misdiagnosed with um, hepatitis. But by that point, they were sort of an addict and they were just kind of in it. Um, How do you... So you kind of grew up around that and came out of it, you know, that kind of scene, mm-hmm. including like, you know, the self-destructive behaviors and mm-hmm. outsiderness and stuff. And now do you still like, you know, in writing this article and reflecting on your life and like your age and where you live now and like everything, like, do you still feel a kinship with outsider status or a value in outsider status? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I just, I mean, I think this world is terrible and I think that, um, American culture is awful and, you know, and we're just like living in such a, a like a clear manifestation right now of just how like xenophobic and hateful, you know, like American culture is and the history and the legacy of it. And I just think that, you know, anything people need to do, anything outsider people need to do to survive and to get by is completely 100% understandable. It's like, personally, like, I hope that, you know, people live long enough to like, confront their self-destructive coping mechanisms and figure out something better so that they can stick around longer and have like a long, happy, peaceful life if that's what they want. But yeah, I mean, a hundred percent, I think that um, just that kind of rebellion and embodiment of like what's wrong, like like the hag sort of like embodied everything. I mean, the nineties were a really big time for, for reclaiming, you know, like, like reclamation was like a a really important thing, like reclaiming like language, like queer nation, calling themselves queer nation, fags, calling themselves fags, dykes, calling ourselves dykes. Like that was like a big thing to be like, you know, it's, it's not that we're not who you think we are. Let us convince you America that, that we're just like you. It's like, we don't want to be like you. You guys are racist and you're homophobic and you're hateful and, you know, if you say that we're monsters, fine, then we're monsters because like, we'll be whatever you're not, you know? And, and to me, the hags embodied that, like their lives and the choices they made embodied that. Um, and I don't think people necessarily thought they were being self-destructive, even though it was really clear to outsiders that that's what was happening, but that's the case with addiction. I mean, when I was 
in my like addictions and alcoholism, I didn't think I was being self-destructive. I thought I was having an awesome time. And for a while I was, you know, drugs are fun (laughs) and people wouldn't do them if they weren't fun. They're really fun until they're not anymore. And then they quickly make your life miserable. And then you're trapped because you, you, you can't believe it's true and you keep using them, hoping that they'll feel better, you know, that they'll, they'll work again for you. Should we try some drugs right now? <laughs> I don't know what I have in the house. So I've, today I've brought for you um, some crystal meth. Um, I, that's something that's interesting about the 90s is there were these underground cultures. Mm-hmm. And when mainstream media came knocking, they were really resistant to that. Yeah. And or, like I was thinking about Riot Girl because yeah. I was teaching the zine workshop at Rock Camp. And all these little girls are like, how come we're not playing instruments right now? How come we're sitting with this nerd? <laughs> and I feel I'm like, I feel compelled to tell them like, yeah, if it wasn't for zines, Riot Girl wouldn't have happened. Yeah. It wouldn't have spread the word. And if Riot Girl wouldn't have happened, rock, fucking Rock Camp wouldn't have happened because yeah. it was inspired by Riot Girl. Yeah. So like these thousands of people that have been influenced by it wouldn't have you know yeah wouldn't, you wouldn't have anything i told him i was like you'd be digging a ditch working <laughs> at a coal mine but um but you know like when when mainstream media came knocking in the 90s to these subcultures the subcultures were like were very wary and suspicious and said no yeah but right now because corporate-owned media you know makes you lets you think that it's in your own hands everyone's really excited about branding themselves uh-huh. getting that attention getting yeah. more attention elevating their platform whatever it is to whoever it's such a different culture. Yeah, it really, really is. And I mean, for whatever it's worth, it's like the the media did come knocking at Riot Girl, and it was so radical and cool that they were just like, no, thank you. They did a media but, blackout Yeah, for people that don't. Yeah they, yeah, they would not. Like Time Magazine wanted to talk to them, and they were like, bye-bye. Um, and the nobody came knocking to talk to the hags. You know, like even during that time period, it's like, there no i mean tribate was getting some attention for sure um but nobody was paying i mean that's what was so crazy is that you know i was living in san francisco where there was such a, it felt like a, like a little like revolution was happening like there was so much output creative output there were one person shows happening there were art shows there were you know spoken word was blowing up there was tons of spoken word shows i felt like i'd always wanted to be part of a like underground cool alternative scene and I was and nobody was paying attention you know and so and that was another reason why I wanted to write the hags article is like feeling this feeling like I lived through something really important in the 90s and there's very little cultural documents about it um and the hags more than than anyone else because they passed away and because they weren't necessarily their creative output wasn't huge like they're really easy to overlook even when I felt like they were so much at the heart of the scene. Um, but also it's funny just talking about or like the hags were like, they thought Riot Girl was like so weak. Well, but I'm so, <laughs> I was never a Riot Girl officially. I was yeah. doing all the same things. Sure, me too. But totally. I was around, I was actually in a different zone. I was in Kansas uh-huh. around a lot of punk boys mm-hmm. who still, I still felt like there was a lot of value in like making fun of girls and making fun of like the tone of girls' voices mm-hmm. and Valley Girls speak totally. and like making fun of people talking about abuse in public and making fun of girls. There was a lot of cachet for me in like just group like lumping in or hanging out with guys that were making fun of girls because yeah. I was like, well, girls are stupid, so I'm not really gonna like align myself with totally. girls. But I am a feminist, mm-hmm. but that means me being really masculine. Because I think that there's no power in femininity. Like I was right, it was a very right. tangled, misogynist little like yeah web of stuff but then you know and then i moved to portland and i met people that were in queer core 
bands on Olympia and stuff. And mm-hmm. they were kind of like, they were like, Riot Girls were straight girls. Like it was right. different than the queer core, queer punk scene. Yeah. And they were allies. I mean, at the end of the day, if there was a huge fight between the squares, you know, between like straight square America and the punks, the Riot Girls and the queer people would have been on the same side. Yeah. But the Riot Girls, there were a lot of them were straight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that there's something to be said about the sort of like internalized misogyny of just being like, no, like who are those fucking girls, you know? Yeah. But I think, I think that there's probably something, something at play there for sure. How could there not be? But I also do think that like, because the hags were so gender queer, they were so queer, they were so queer and they were so gender queer that I think to look at like a cute, sort of like evergreen grad who was, you know, carrying lunchbox and doing riot girl. Like, I don't think they saw, uh, themselves reflected in that person or mm-hmm. in that movement, you know? And so I, I think that, um, it did feel like there were, we were at war in some ways as queer people. And, and it must've felt doubly so to be genderqueer during that time p- period too. And so, you know, you couldn't necessarily assume that just because somebody, I don't know, like there wasn't the commonality wasn't there. Like they didn't even listen. Like they didn't even listen to Riot Girl music. So Which to is presume crazy. that crazy, <laughs> I know it was extra crazy because one of the hags was a roadie for Riot Girl, for for Bikini Kill. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but like didn't necessarily like like super more hardcore music than that. You know. Yeah. So to presume an alliance, you know, I don't know. Even though like yeah, it just it wasn't really there um, in the way that like subcultures can be so fractioned. Yeah, I guess. Just so interesting. Yeah. Because when you look back, it's all happening at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's and just, there were people like aligned with the Riot Girls who were actually really close with Bikini Kill and stuff like that and did see the big picture and did yeah. see that they're all allies and stuff like that. You know, like Tribate and Bikini Kill had like a really tight friendship and, yeah. and mutual support. I'm talking specifically about the actual hags with like hags painted on their jackets. You yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. they just, they were like, that's like college girl stuff. You know, so there was a class thing happening too. You know, Mm -hmm. there was a really big, it was all about like class and access. And like, these are people who were cut off from their families. Their families were abusive. Their families weren't functional. They mostly hadn't gone to college at all. Um, You know, they were so genderqueer and presented so genderqueer that like, I don't know what kind of like employment was available to them. You know, when you just feel like you have nothing, like what did they have access to? Music, drugs, community, fucking shit up. So they did it with gusto, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Today's episode of Sagittarian Matters brought to you by Cute Fruit Undies, Mary Pinson, Gabriel Song Darling, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, Please send $5, $10, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet, like the insect, leg, like its appendage, at gmail. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. I talked about this on the podcast last week, I think. 
butch people never really had a time in the sun as far as like societal oh, acceptance. That's really true. You know, like anytime, like if you see anyone that's butch on TV, if you see like an Ellen, if you see a Rachel Maddow, they're, they still have a kind of like, they have to be wearing three pieces of like female. <laughs> oh, they're going to get fired. Yeah. Totally. They still have to like be yeah. wearing foundation. Yes. And oh eyeshadow. God. And, yeah. you know, and in society at some point, you know, there was bound or something where they're like, oh, look, like, Femme, femme lesbians, okay, kinky. But what's you know? was kind of, she was butch, kind of butch in it. Jennifer she had a butch Tilly. vibe. Not Jennifer Tilly. Who was the other one? I don't remember. Oh my god, she was like, she had a butch vibe. But you know, Her, like, yeah. But there's like acceptability there. Yeah. And then you know, and then society yeah. kind of leapfrogged over butch and genderqueer people to trans people, right? Which being, is very understandable because it's still sort of binary. Yeah. And so yeah. And they're like, you're human. Oh, we're decide. We decided that we're. That we can try to accept you as a human. Yeah, you know, before that was not the case. Right. Um, but butch people never had that moment. It's really true. It's it's all it's harder for people, I think, who have not harder. It's not the Olympics. It's not the Olympics. The oppression Olympics. It's not the oppression Olympics. It's fucking hard to be gender variant in any way, shape, or form. But it's I think it's true what you're saying. They haven't gotten the the media the media blast. There was never a moment. Butches. And I just feel like there's I don't know. I mean it's I know responsible for branding butches. They have to like I mean, Esther, Butch is not a dirty word magazine. Oh. We've had, but that, that's it, though. Mm. Like a small Australian publication. She's taking all of it on her shoulders. Yeah. And it's all happening in Australia? That's hard. That's even more hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I do think that the representation is so valuable. And as much as people are like, Ugh, like assimilation, it's still, it, it, it help, there is like kind of a societal trickle down, I think. Of people just understanding that they have to accept you or treat you like a human being. Yeah. You know, because they've like, oh, they're like, oh, I've seen one of you somewhere and that person seems like a nice person. So I <laughs> totally. am good. So it's a weird thing. It's like, it's a, yeah, I mean, if you come from like a sort of more queer centric, radical politic punk background, you're like, assimilation, fuck that. But then it's like, also, don't we just want people to like be able to like live unmolested and unharmed and like pursue their happiness and like that's you know really hard to do when all of the culture is like condemning you and won't give you a basic job and won't allow you to do things to sustain yourself you know so it's it's tricky i mean i think i think that i mean that's why like the whole thing about gay marriage and it being like so poo-pooed in radical circles it's just sort of like it's so i think queers are so funny like if there was any other like group of people that were somehow like there was a law that everyone got to do something, but that group was not allowed to do it. Queers would be in the fucking streets fighting for that person. But yeah. here is this thing that everyone's allowed to do except queers. And we're just like, well, fuck it. I didn't want to anyway. Why don't we fight for something? You know, it's just like, yeah, well, we fight for everything. You know what I mean? It's like it, it, means, it, it means something in our culture. That's just how it goes. It just it means something to be able to get married. And if I just think I'm not thinking about like I think about what queer marriage means like i'm not thinking about like two like super privileged white cisgendered you know gay men who now get to have a super pricey wedding in west hollywood even if they might be the face of it i'm thinking about like kids growing up in weird places where now it's like they see that people are getting married and they just think like there's a safety that they can presume that is available for them in the world whether or not they want to get married they're not it's not like you're growing up being like oh my god i'm this kind of person that is so taboo that there are rules against me being able to do like normal things with the person that I love, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, in some places, you know, until recently it was against the, it's against the law to be gay. Yeah. So like, how could you ever grow up and just have a fully 
I don't know, like a, a full, a full sense of self where you're like, I'm okay. Like you have yeah. to be so, you have to be like a cockroach or something to yeah. grow up and not have any of that permeate your shell. Like right. that shame or that weirdness from the outside does, does get in the cracks. Even yeah. if you are like, fuck you guys. Yeah. All queers have PTSD. Or, yeah. And they, all, all queer people. I mean, maybe that will be less, made less and less so as like young people who are growing up with like progressive parents in urban areas where everything's normal, that might not be the case. But I'm 47 and I know that I, I, I think I can really say that all queers of my generation have some sort of PTSD. And I would think that the generations behind us as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, and I, of course the generations before us, I mean, that goes I without mean, saying. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I even, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty well adjusted in some way, but mm-hmm. I still like, you know, I got fired from a job for having a video where I was telling gay people how to pick up people where somebody had asked me a question on a vlog of advice question. How do I get laid? And the answer, the answer was easy. The answer was like, get a good haircut, talk to people, but it went viral amongst these sixth graders. And so oh, I got fired from the job for, but I just had this moment where I was like, I can't be an adult and also work with kids. Oh. And then when you're queer, you kind of also have this kind of internalized homophobia of like, I feel like people have labeled me some kind of sex pervert just for being human. So like when kids come up and try to hug me, I'm like, oh God. And I like immediately go to like side hug or like a high five because I'm like, like so gross. Stay back. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're not allowed to be, you have to be like a weird neutered gay person. Whereas like straight people are, of course, again, their marriages and the, and the, you may now kiss the bride, like straight people kissing. It's like, who didn't grow up seeing straight people kiss all the time? Like mistletoe. Like it's just part of the culture. They'll be like, we're trying to have a baby. But if gay people are even like, get a nice haircut. So somebody might think you're cute. Pervert. (laughs) Kind (laughs) of. It feels like, but when I, but when I tell straight people that story, they're like, oh no, no. Why do you think that shouldn't happen? What? You should be able to just do whatever you want, you know? And of course you should, but that's just like not what's real. And again, it's like that's straight privilege is never having to even think about something like that. I only think about all the stuff I was, I was talking about a book I want to do about my straight year. (laughs) I was talking about it with um, an editor friend and she was asking me about my attachment to outsider status mm-hmm. and like kind of the safety I found in outsider status and how uncomfortable and weird it felt to like date a straight guy and be like holding hands in the street and having people basically give us like a thumbs up totally. and like old people being like, way to go. And anything I had ever wanted of my gay girlfriends, just having some straight guy assume that he could have those things and trying to give them to me within like a minute of meeting me just feels so yeah. Anyway, Michelle, yeah. thank you for telling us about the hags. Oh, I'm really I'm happy to get to tell a bit of their story. Um, yeah. How can people read more about it? Um, you can get my book Against Memoir. Um, and you can get it wherever fine books are sold in in bookstores or in real life. I mean, or in the internet. Wonderful. Yeah. And uh, in real life, <laughs> the internet. <laughs> I was I I had like I I was thinking about um I got distracted inside my own brain because somebody, and I wish, I can't remember who it was. Somebody had posted, a writer had posted on Twitter um, that they're so confused and people say, where can I get your book? Like, they're like, don't you know that there are bookstores? Like, where do you, where do you think you get a book? (laughs) But wherever fine books are sold sold, um, on the internet or in real life at a bookstore. Um, And there's also a version of it that is online at The Believer because The Believer um, ran an excerpted version of it before the book came out. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. See, there's multiple answers. Multiple answers. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you, Nicole.
Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.